You're listening to Policy Currents, a weekly podcast from the RAND Corporation. I'm Deanna Lee. And I'm Evan Banks. Every Friday, we bring you new insights from RAND's latest research and commentary. It's November 17th. Many have referred to the October 7th terror attack by Hamas as Israel's 9-11. On its face, this analogy makes sense. In both cases, the attackers gained strategic surprise. Both events killed hundreds of civilians, although on a per capita basis, 10-7 was about 15 times the scale of 9-11. And both attacks prompted large-scale and likely protracted military responses, although Israel's war in Gaza promises to be, if anything, more intense. This comparison is also useful in that it conveys, particularly to Americans, the level of national shock and anger in Israeli society. But beyond this, the 10-7-9-11 analogy is misleading, says Rand's Raphael Cohen. Perhaps the most notable difference is that the United States could choose to eventually withdraw from Afghanistan, although it did take Washington two decades to reach that conclusion— and the merits of that decision are still open for debate today. But for the simple reason of geography, Israel lacks such an option. Why is geography so important? Well, the U.S. opted for a low-footprint counterterrorism approach in Afghanistan because most Americans, particularly by the end of the conflict, did not actually care enough to do much more than that. In the end, even that modest investment proved too much. America's national clock was shorter than the Taliban's. The U.S. decided that 20 years of war was enough, so it packed up and left. Unlike Afghanistan for the U.S., Gaza is not half a world away from Israel. Gaza will never be out of sight or out of mind. Such proximity means that if Israel so chooses, it can, quote, invest the time and resources to rebuild Gaza economically, politically, and societally, if only to prevent another 10-7-style attack from occurring in the future, Cohen says. In other words, Gaza will not be Israel's Afghanistan, simply because stepping away is a luxury Israel cannot afford. For better or worse, Israel and Gaza are fundamentally intertwined. Staying with Israel and Hamas, the ongoing hostage crisis looms large in this conflict. During its attack last month, Hamas abducted more than 200 people. As we record early Friday morning on the East Coast, Hamas has released only four of these hostages so far. But with delicate negotiations reportedly moving forward, a deal to release more hostages may be on the horizon. Still, as Israel's ground assault in Gaza continues, government leaders face tremendous pressure to do whatever it takes to save the lives of captives. According to Rand's Brian Michael Jenkins, past hostage crises don't offer a prescription for how to bargain for human life. But history does provide some important lessons, namely that humanitarian appeals rarely work. And further, rescue operations, while an attractive alternative to negotiations, work much better in Hollywood movies than they do in real life. There have been some spectacular exceptions, but the risk of a rescue is high, and if something goes wrong, the results can be tragic. 
Ultimately, hostages may be held for months, even years, but most come home alive, eventually. This is typically because ransoms are paid, prisoners are released, or other concessions are made. Quote, People holding hostages are seldom moved by humanitarian concerns, Jenkins says. They trade in lives. The terms we ultimately accept to secure a release reflect the importance we place on bringing back our own. Bargaining, therefore, is one-sided. There are no good deals made under duress. The 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline was created over a year ago with the hope that more people would reach out for help when experiencing a mental health crisis. Today, there are some indications that things are going well, including a 46% increase in the number of calls answered by 988 in the first year. But the fledgling hotline also faces challenges, says Ray and Stephanie Brooks Holiday. Awareness of 988 is low. A recent survey found that just 13% of Americans know of both 988's existence and the reasons why someone might call it. Instead, 911 remains the default option when a person is experiencing suicidal thoughts or when a loved one with a mental health condition has become agitated or aggressive. Even still, survey data suggests that almost half of Americans are afraid to call 911. They don't think it's a safe option to call for someone undergoing a behavioral health problem. And for good reason. Given the many stories of people, often people of color, killed by police when law enforcement officers respond to a mental illness crisis. There are also ongoing struggles with implementation of 988. Even though the hotline has been around for more than a year, many jurisdictions are struggling to integrate it in a coordinated way. These challenges can have serious implications. If someone is unaware of 988 or afraid to call 911 during a mental health emergency, they're left to navigate the complex system of community mental health care, which is plagued by staffing and funding shortages. It's clear that some kind of broader advertising and outreach campaign about 988 is as necessary today as it was when the hotline was created, Holiday says. Quote, people simply can't call what they don't know to call. And yet the need is there and the need is often desperate. If you or someone you know needs mental health support, then please call, text, or chat the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988 or visit 988lifeline.org. North Korea has been vastly increasing its nuclear weapon capabilities and threatening South Korea and the United States with nuclear attacks. At the same time, China is also vastly increasing its nuclear weapon capabilities and is no longer trusted by most South Koreans. To counter these threats, the U.S. provides extended deterrence for South Korea and promises a nuclear umbrella so that Seoul does not need its own nuclear weapons. But the U.S. has constructed its nuclear umbrella on a high degree of strategic ambiguity, with the belief that this ambiguity is the most effective strategy in deterring North Korean aggression. A new RAND report considers what could be done to provide more concrete nuclear assurance for South Korea. Among the key findings, a South Korea-U.S. coercive campaign to freeze North Korean nuclear weapon development could strengthen South Korea's nuclear assurance. 
Further, Washington could consider establishing some degree of parity with the nuclear threat from Pyongyang. This is important not only for deterring North Korea, but also to avoid a future decision by South Korea to establish its own nuclear weapon force. If Seoul were to produce its own nuclear weapons, it could lead to international sanctions that would seriously damage the South Korean economy, create political controversy and instability, and increase global nuclear weapon proliferation. If you'd like to learn more about what we discussed in today's episode, check out the show notes at rand.org slash podcast. We're off next week. Have a happy and safe Thanksgiving holiday, and we'll be back in your feeds on December 1st. <laughs>